This is Beekeeper Confidential. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. I'm getting ready to head to Ashland, Oregon at the end of this week for the Cascade Girl Organization's Bee Weekend. I'm terrible at traveling, and so I'm freaking out about getting everything ready on time and having enough materials for my presentations and for my booth and packing my things and all that stuff. But I am planning on getting some recordings done while I'm there and hopefully making some new bee connections to share with you. I recorded today's interview just a couple of weeks ago, right before swarm season kicked off. I was sitting in my studio, anxiously staring at the window at my beehives while I waited for our guest's phone call. Once the phone rang, I completely forgot about feeling sorry for my swarmless self and fell into a fabulous conversation about drumming hives, queen genetics, and how to grow your apiary without buying nukes or packages. Meet the one and only Sam Comfort of Anarchy Apiaries. going good how you doing good busy (laughs) yeah thank you so much for letting me intrude on your time today oh yeah no worries i'm transitioning from florida to new york is it springtime where you are it is yeah although it's been really cold and wet the entire month and so swarm season hasn't really kicked off for us yet but it's got to be any day now (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. One season never stops for me. (laughs) I could imagine. You have an empire. Nah, I wouldn't call it that. (laughs) I kind of have the option of of building a bee empire, but I'm I'm much more interested in games and theory and just like messing around with them, doing experiments. I have a lot of bees, though. Yeah, um, (laughs) last I heard something around 500 hives. Oh, that's that's uh, what, what I try to put into winter in New York, and we keep about 500 through winter, if you can call it that, in Florida, but worked up to about 12 or 1,300 mating nukes <laughs> in Florida this spring. Beetles cut them back a little bit, but it's uh, it's a lot of bees, sure. That you know. is a lot of bees. When you first started Anarchy Apiaries, I mean, even though you had a tremendous amount of experience on the commercial side. Did you know that this was going to grow to the size that it has? I had no idea. You know, I, I was into it at, like a couple of years before colony collapse disorder hit the, the media and the whole country started bugging out. Mm-hmm. And I just thought I would sell a little bit of honey on weekends at a farmer's market and just eke out a living for the rest of my days, like and live in the woods or something. But uh, I never <laughs> thought the bee world would get so crazy and i didn't think it would be like just continuing to be so crazy over the 10 plus years since ccd hit the newspaper it just gets crazier every year demand for bees gets higher and higher everyone's freaking out especially this year there's a major shortage on queens california queen raisers are all delayed a month and i'm getting desperate calls every day 
Wow. People wanting 200, 300 queens. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can spot you in now, mid-April or something. And they ask me, are they a, a, Italian bees? I'm like, no. <sighs> I don't have any Italian bees. You don't even know who you're calling, do you? Right. And I'm just doing survivor stock and BSH and Russians and, and things like that. So but, uh, I, I'm often asked, like, by new beekeepers, we do a beginning beekeeping course here in Portland. And people always know, like, well... What kind of queen should I get? I don't know. Should I get Italian or Carnolian? And people are so torn between that choice. And we're like, no, local bees. Get them locally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah get the, the local mutts. You know, they anticipate the hunting flow. They're, like, surviving in that area. These are very different from one location to another. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's actually pretty tough to find ones that, like, can really work <laughs> yeah that, uh, like, like locally yeah yeah bees are in such high demand these days and you know catching swarms is always like top choice because they're they, they're tested and proven in your area no matter what they are but i brought in a lot of bsh for less sensitive hygiene over the years russian bees carnelian bees basically i just stay away from almond pollinating bees the real bright yellow ones that mm-hmm. turn all their food into brood all the time and are also raising lots of parasites all the time. And, and you know, those like are the bees, bees that have been mated to the nukes and the packages that are being brought into people's backyards right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting those calls now. People have the, the dead queen in their package and, and things like that. But, you know, if people really want bees and they really want to buy bees, I tell them to requeen them. Give them, like, six weeks. Give them, like, two brood cycles. But like that, about six weeks later, requeen them with something that's local or something that's mite resistant or something that's like kind of geared towards your interests of like what kind of beekeeper you want to be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what we're doing selling queens. I don't really sell packages or, or nukes anymore. We're just so busy with the queens yeah. and trying to get good genetics out there. Yeah. So many beekeepers that I've talked with that are new want to be treatment free right off the bat and they're trying to do it with packages or nukes that they've purchased and uh-huh. how <laughs> how can a backyard beekeeper achieve treatment free without being stupid i love that title by the way i, I saw that you were in eugene treatment last free, year but not stupid. <laughs> yeah yeah that's what that's what my t-shirt says yeah. <laughs> treatment free but not stupid so uh-huh. how how can people achieve that Especially yeah. if they're if they're really new at it and they're not familiar with all the nuances of the hive, how can they right. really do that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, it's a steep learning curve, no matter what kind of beekeeper you want to be. But in order to pull this off without doing treatments, uh, for one thing, you can't do it in every single area. If you got crashing bees all around you in a city, mm-hmm. or you're close to like commercial beekeepers, who you know, as, as as hard as these guys try and, and stuff, you know, you you treat for your mites, and they're still they're still there. They're still getting out of control. They're still having hives crash, whether they treat them or not. But uh, I think it's threefold going the treatment free route. So for one thing, it's environment, it's management, and it's genetics. You know, the environment is super important because no matter if you're treating them or not, or what kind of beekeeper you are, if you're not in a good area that's that, providing sustenance for your bees, you're not going to do well, no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. So you need good, clean forage, and that's getting harder and harder to find. And the weather patterns are always, like, there's no normal anymore, global weirding. It's just, like, you don't know what to expect anymore. Yeah. There's, no, uh, there's no schedule anymore. Get your supers on by mid-May. You see your swarm, or, like, you're harvesting by mid-June. It's, it's not like that anymore. 
It's, it's crazy. So environment, super critical. Uh, management, you know, um, one thing I, I teach when I teach queen raising classes is like the importance of breaking the brood cycle. Mm-hmm. So even if you don't have like local bees or proven mite-resistant bees or things like that, breaking the brood cycle is a tool that you can use that gives the bees a, a reset. It's uh, it's really buying them time, and it's something that the bees do on their own naturally. You can like call it a mechanical treatment or something like that, but it's something that bees do as part of their own self-defense. You know, if you leave a hive alone, it's going to swarm or supersede, mm-hmm. uh, like, eventually. And that is, like, hitting the reset button. The hive goes totally broodless by the time the new queen is laying. They're able to call mites off of each other. You know, bees have this grooming behavior, this fighting behavior. 90% of the mites are always in the brood unless the hive is broodless. And that breaks, like, say, midsummer during your swarm season. And, you know, beekeepers just did nothing and let them swarm, like Tom Feely, like, recommends. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's almost as if the bees know what they're doing and know how to clean themselves oh, right. up, you know? Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's still presumptuous. But, of course, letting your hive swarm from a commercial standpoint is, like, half of your money flying out into the woods. And it's not in everyone's, like, management plan to do that. Yeah. But in terms of, like raising queens or making more bees or growing your own bees in your backyard, it can be part of the way that you make splits to get this little brood break going, stimulate the swarm, like like the bees would do naturally on their own anyway, and you're also building your numbers at the same time. Mm -hmm. So party management like that is like a really, really good deal. Um, I do a lot of comb rotation. I don't use any foundation. I don't use any foreign wax. I don't use any plastic in my hives other than clean cups and clean cages. Mm-hmm. Um, everything, I, I just always just try to take as much stress off the bees as possible and not try to, like, treat the bad guy or see Varroa as the villain, you know, and try to, like, fight the enemy, <laughs> you know, or just, like, put a Band-Aid on the symptoms. I don't really see the Varroa as, like, the, the cause, they're more of a symptom of a deeper cause. And trying to treat for varroa, you're not looking at the underlying factors that are really compromising the beehives, you know. Mm-hmm. And tracking varroa, doing mite counts and stuff like that, I've seen plenty of hives survive with high mites over the years, and they don't get sick. You know, eventually the mites go down, whereas some hives have very few mites, and they get those secondary diseases, and they crash, you know. And, mm-hmm. So there wasn't a lot of correlation between mite rolls and mortality for me, but... Mm-hmm. So management is a, like a, a big factor. Actively do your beekeeping. Uh, I don't really recommend people get Warre hives or follow the Warre philosophy. <laughs> right. I love Warre's book. Um, <laughs> it, it was so awesome. It, 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 it's it's beautiful philosophy, and I love the idea of like bees for bees. Leave the bees alone. Let let them do it. But especially if you're new, don't expect to to shake some commercial bees into a box, and they they they're gonna die probably exactly. more likely than not. And people wonder. They did this natural beekeeping thing. Their bees died. And I explained to them when they, they call me crying on the phone. I say, hey, you got into bees because you read in the newspaper that they were dying. You bought this kit. You bought these commercial bees and they died. What did you think was going to happen? What did you read about in the paper, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, like the Warrior Hive's a cool hive. I took that hive and modified it quite a bit. So it's like what I, I do now. But it's, um, it's something I believe that people ought to be propagating their own bees going in there assessing their health, waiting for diseases and things like that, and, and splitting and making more bees, growing their own hives in their backyard mm-hmm. part of their management strategy, you know. And the third part, the third fold thing about going treatment-free is genetics because 
like Bob Danka from the Baton Rouge USDA Bee Lab uh, says, they have solved the mite problem with a varroa-sensitive hygiene bees. They're breeding bees with a very intense sense of smell that can sense an infested cell uh, and pull out the uh, goopy with a mite on it before the mite can go through its reproduction cycle. So uh, they've been working on the, the VSH program for years and seen a lot of improvement. Uh, when it first came out years ago, the bees were kind of feisty. They were kind of mean. They were uncapping tons of brood, whether <laughs> they had mites on it or not. And they're still a little bit like that. They're still a little OCD, you know, <laughs> especially in my cell raisers. They're tearing down, they tear, tear down queen cells quite often, you know, the BSH bees. But we work with them and, and, but it's true. You know, these bees have very few mites on them just by culling the brood. Of course, they're, they're spending a lot of time doing this where, like, and, and they don't grow as, as, as large or vigorous because they're culling brood of the, pretty often, especially with higher infestations, but, but they live, you know, they tend to have very low mites going into winter and, of course, mites are vectoring the diseases. It's, it's one way of keeping your diseases down is keeping the mites down and genetics, uh, they've done it. And the cool thing about VSH is that it's a very inheritable trait. It's not a, a breed of bee, it's a trait that they brought out. And that trait is inheritable over generations, which is a very dominant trait. So, like uh, John Harbo, who helped discover the VSH trait, he says, if you get a 100% breeder queen uh, that's 100% VSH, even if they, they if the daughter queen mate with zero VSH grown, 50% of the VSH trait is enough to keep mites below a killing threshold. I was going to ask about that because, like, even if you keep VHS bees in your own yard and you're raising your Mm -hmm. own queens, but you're surrounded by bees brought in from other states or other locations, Uh how do you keep the genetics from being watered down? Yeah, they will be watered down, but, I mean, since, like, I realized and, like, and... Despite what they've said, I've actually tested this, and, you know, I, I, like, do flood the area with my own drones as much as possible, but it's (laughs) a lot of spots I have. It's not that possible. There's just a lot of other bees around. But, yeah, the VSH thing does hold true over generations, daughters to granddaughters to great-granddaughters that I've been tracking. And uh, whereas Russian bees, which I've used a lot of, I've gotten stock from Kirk Webster and a lot of uh, breeders from the Russian Bee Breeders Association and stuff like that, not so much, uh, because those bees just, they go all over the place in the next generation. You know, you raise a hundred daughters from a breeder queen, and they'll do a hundred different things. Uh, mm. which I like, I like diversity in my bee yard. You know, I have all different kinds of hives. There are all different sizes going in and out of winter. Some make honey, some don't. Some do different stuff year after year. But the problem is with the Russian bees is that some keep the mite resistant in the next generation and some don't. And the same thing with uh, the mite biters that like Purdue has been breeding and stuff like that. Some keep that biting behavior, and that's what they think the Russian bees really have is the biting behavior uh, and grooming that, that knocks their mites down. Yeah. Uh, that is warming. <laughs> one of their defenses. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, bees that swarm are like, really going to be healthy bees. But so, but in terms of genetics, I, I really recommend people look at the VSH. And uh, there's a lot more people starting to do VSH testing instead of trying to augment that trait in their own local bees. Mm-hmm. And all bees have it to some extent, and it can really be brought out with just like a little bit of field testing and stuff. And look, I don't do any VSH testing. I get some, some of the VSH breed, uh, uh, 
uh, genes every, every year or so, just by buying some queen cells from people and stuff like that that are from pure VSH breeders. Uh, I don't do any, like, real testing, and I don't even really count mites or much. I just don't breed from the dead bees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Keep> it simple. <laughs> so with all the, yeah. the different hive styles that you keep, uh, do they tend to prefer or survive better in the smaller hive cavities? Um, I, I don't, I, I think it's, uh, just as much a genetic thing as, as terms of, of a hive cavity. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a while, I was all horizontal top bar hives. I was Kenyan top bar hives. I worked up to a couple hundred of those. Wow. And I had come up in the Adirondacks that went to like 38 below zero. You know, they had Russian bees and then the Russian bees like love winter. Whoa. They, <laughs> they, <thrive laughs> in it. they don't. They don't eat any honey in the winter. They seem to make honey during winter. And in the Adirondacks, even in horizontal hives, they did fine and thrive. The problem was with the top bars, I just couldn't keep up with the swarming. Once I had a couple hundred of them, uh, the horizontal hives, you have to constantly expand their brood nest because they'll get honey bound uh-huh. on the sides. They can't move up or down. So at the same time, they'll be like, all my top bars were swarming, and I was looking for uh, a, a more leave-alone hive or a hive that I didn't get in, have to get into every two weeks to... to uh, alleviate the congestion of the war ape book was translated uh, from the French by David Heath and he sent it over to me the, the fresh translation and I just thought it was a great book and I, I built a couple of them kind of rustic style and that first layer they, they really thrived I just left them alone mm-hmm. uh, put some good bees into them and I was convinced that this kind of hollow tree design was really good and then I changed the dimensions I made them a, a little bit shorter my boxes uh, are only six inches deep Oh. rather than the, the nine or so that, that his are. And I, I mess with them constantly. Well, I have my out yards that pretty much leave alone, kind of Warwick style, like they often swarm or supersede and, and do their bee thing. But then I have my whole set of nukes that I'm into on a three-week rotation, mm-hmm. like clockwork. I, I know what I'm doing every single day of the year. The only way to together. <laughs> so... People have told me since I've changed the dimensions and changed the whole management and philosophy strategy to stop calling them worry hives and I should just call them comfort hives. And I'm not really over like the pretentiousness of calling them comfort hives yet, <laughs> but uh, I just call them box hives. They really go back to like the 1800s, you know, Moses Quimby, Edward Bevan, you know, like 1820s, he was doing a real similar box hive. Uh, anyone sees like a hive that shapes like a box these days, they call it a worry hive, but really it, it, it goes back centuries. Ever since there was, there was milled lumber, people were hammering a couple boards together and putting bees in them, you know? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any skep hives? Oh, yeah. I've kept skeps, actually, in, uh, when I lived in Hawaii for a little over a year. Hawaii is one of the few states that doesn't have uh, inspectable home laws. So they're oh. bee people, so it's actually illegal. And uh, they were having all kinds of beetle problems in them, too, so we didn't keep many steps <laughs> for sure. But uh, I've kept them in wicker baskets. So I've caught bees in five-gallon buckets. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's really fun, um, like, harvesting honey or drumming bees out of steps, you know? Oh, tell me about yeah. drumming bees. I've heard about it, but I've never had the chance to try it, but I'm really curious about it. So fun. <laughs> um, well, by the late 1700s or so, it was, uh, it was starting to be frowned on to, to sulfur your bees to harvest the honey. Mm. When everyone was keeping skeps or log hives, you know, people would like gas their bees off at the end of the year, or they would gas off half their bees and harvest the honey, and they would save half that would swarm the next year, and they would repopulate the ones that they killed. And 
you know, these days people still kill off half their bees and they just don't intentionally do it. Right. Um, <laughs> in, in, their, in their attempts to save the bees, they're killing half of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people used to do it intentionally. And yes, that sounds barbaric to kill off half your bees, but I really think that's why our honeybees today are so gentle. It's mm. because, I mean, if you're going to kill off half of your bees to harvest some honey, you're going to kill off the mean ones that, that stung you <laughs> during right. the summer. So <laughs> I think over centuries of doing this, we've actually like we've selected the bees that are like you know more tolerant of human invasions. Wow. But um, by the late 1700s or so, that was kind of frowned on to, to be killing off all, most of your bees every year. So people started drumming the bees out of skeps. And uh, a lot of people, beekeepers would note when the skeps swarmed, uh, write down the dates, and then they would do the drumming three weeks after the swarm. So your old queen leaves, three weeks later, there is no brood left in the hive. It's all just honey and nectar and pollen, but no brood. The new queen has probably just gotten mated. Maybe she's just starting to lay. Uh-huh. So that is like a perfect time to harvest and drum the bees out, harvest your old comb, and then they have the rest of the the main flow, and then the fall flow to rebuild their comb and repopulate the, the skep, get it ready for winter. So drumming bees is something that I really uh, recommend. If people have a top bar or, or a hive that's on totally crazy combs, uh-huh. foundationless, uh, foundationless land straw or something that's all sideways, uninspectable, not legal in most states, you can either let your hive swarm and write down the dates or drum your bees out until you can get the queen out of that hive. Take her, and you can uh, uh, make a little split with her, use her somewhere else, then write down your date, and then go back in three weeks, and then do your cutout. Then drum your bees out or do a, a cutout, and you'll just be dealing with honey and nectar, and you won't have to be cutting through brood and really causing a lot of stress wow. to the hive, stuff like that. So, When it comes to like the actual drumming, do you literally just <laughs> bang on the hive? Yep. <laughs> you sure do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More vibration, but better, actually. And the bees, I mean, they're they're, they're very, very gentle, you know. Uh-huh. Like bees, uh, I mean, we have Africanized bees here in Florida, but we have, like, a very gentle variety. I think all the mean ones have been killed off over the decades, at least in my uh, side of Florida, on the, the southeast side of Florida. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all have spread a lot. I get a DNA test on my bees uh, every year so I can sell, be certified to sell queens. But there's, like, spread a lot of mixed in, but they're... They're just great, local, gentle bees. They're a little runnier. They're a little swarmier mm-hmm. than your average bee, but they're, they're pretty awesome. There's some pockets of mean ones, uh, but they're nothing like Texas or Arizona. And bees like that, <laughs> where the bees are just like super runny and just like crazy festooning and, and love to attack you. But uh, the drumming, I mean, it's uh, I've done it with all kinds of structures, bait hives. You know, we do we get a lot of bees in bait hives, and we just drum the bees out pretty constantly. And we never wear wear veils or really any gear. Uh, smoke is actually pretty minimal. It's more about how you move around them mm-hmm. and your intentions, I think, and how calm you are. You know, once you uh, lose that fear of getting stung, then it seems that the bees stop wanting to sting you. <laughs> Uh, but we still get stung every day. You know, getting stung is <laughs> my favorite part of keeping bees. But drumming is one of the, the times that they, they rarely sting. They just kind of go into, I don't know, move mode. They're just moving shop. Wow. But uh, there's a couple of things that, that move bees out of a cavity. Uh, vibrations is one. Um, sunlight is one. They tend to run away from sunlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people would flip the skep upside down and let the sun shine on the cones and put an empty skep right above it that was dark, 
and the bees will just run up into the dark steps like that. Um, and smoke will move bees, and like uh, uh, breathing on them will move them. You know, just don't try that at home. I know. I always tell people if you're gonna blow on them, use a veil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I do tell people to use a veil or even gloves, whatever makes you feel comfortable. You don't want to be scared of your bees. That's not a good relationship to have. I, I know beekeeping is yeah. all about overcoming fear, but that that takes time. You don't you don't expect to just jump on in there and start like drumming them and <laughs> crazy <laughs> things to them. It, it, you have to learn how to move, and uh, they're they're very good teachers. You learn it with some time, but uh, the drumming's pretty neat. It's always like a really like, fun activity. I feel like I'm in some ancient ritual. <laughs> what is the perfect day for you in the in one of your apiaries? What's your favorite job? Oh wow. Um, well, I like. Uh, but I like catching queens, definitely. <laughs> and uh, it's always like the end of the day. The day. It's kind of weird because you go to the post office with a big stack of buzzing envelopes. And <laughs> the, postal, the postal employees, they think it's weird. I think it's weird. But I bring them jars of honey, and they're always happy to, happy to see me. And the, <laughs> the bees tend to get there on time. But um, the way I'm doing uh, the, the, the queen raising in the last couple of years is that uh, I'm on a seven-day schedule. So we graft every Monday. We're catching queens every Tuesday and Wednesday, and then Thursday the cells go in, uh, the cells that we grafted the previous week, so they go in on day 10. What's Friday? Oh, Friday, I'm just trying to keep keep up with other stuff. <laughs> okay. Using extra queens from the catch, uh, checking out yards, answering emails, trying to keep up with equipment. Um, it's <laughs> uh, there's never an idle time, for How sure. many people do you have helping you? Um, it's usually just me. I've been at this for like 16 years now. I've been raising queens now for 14 of those years. But uh, Tuckabee has helped out these last couple years, and uh, Angela from Yardbird Feeds yeah. helped out occasionally uh, a couple of days uh, through the week, uh, mostly like catching queens and stuff. Not a lot of people want to come out and just like build boxes or bottle honey and make <laughs> queen candy all night long and stuff, or answer emails and things like that, but... I appreciate the help in all aspects. Wow. But, uh, so ever, ever since I went to the seven-day queen cycle, you know, I know what I'm doing every single day of the year. Like I said, it's taking all the stress out of it. Mm-hmm. And every week since I'm, I'm trying it again, I can tweak something. I, I can tweak, like, the feed on the cell raisers or tweak uh, or try a new, like, mating or a factor of the mating use or, or something like that and see how it goes. So there's all these variables that I can change and experiment with week to week. And it makes it really, really fun. With the idea of getting as many queens as you can from the take and like how big the queens can be and just like making progress like that. And so, yeah, a, a nice queen catch when the queens are all looking really good and it's like, oh, it's actually working, you know, that, that feels really good. <laughs> and I started teaching on um, like a four day workshop of this, this process of, you know, grafting on Mondays. Oh. On Tuesdays, we start, we start catching this uh, set of uh, mating nukes and we bank brood from the mating nukes. To, to use in next week's cell raisers. Well, um, my mating is go three weeks after cell placement. Uh, three weeks later, I'm catching the queen. I let them sit queenless for one or two days, and then I replace them with a, a 10-day-old queen cell. And so we work about 200 nukes a week. And so you can imagine with a perfect take, we have 200 queens to deal with and 200 little baby combs of brood that we need to do something with. So it's a constant equipment crisis. 
you can imagine. <laughs> so, yeah, they're just like little four combs, of these little baby combs, so they need to be cut back every time we catch the queen. Oh. And so the first bird that we catch, we bank above a queen excluder for next week's cell raisers. So it's a self-contained system. The brood is coming from these baby newts, and because of that break in the brood cycle, it's almost virtually mite-free. Wow. And not only is it mite-free, this break in the brood cycle does a lot more than just, like, knocking down varroa mites. It's adding to the bees' protein and lipids in their bodies. They're vitellogelian, that, that really important protein mm-hmm. um, that, that the bees have. Uh, so if they're not... Uh, in the meeting nukes, they only have this break of about a week of no eggs being laid. But that's enough to swell their hypopharyngeal glands, and they feed all of that super potent royal jelly. It's like super royal jelly, extra royal jelly. Wow. You know, to that next generation, the first of uh, the new queen's brood that, uh, when she starts laying. So it's a very, very well-nourished brood coming out of the mating nukes. And we bank that, and that's what goes into our cell raisers. And those bees emerge in the cell raisers. We bank it for six days, you know, I'm banking on Tuesday, next Monday we're getting it and putting it into the, uh, the cell raisers, and so make sure there's no open larva, no rogue queen cells on it, mm-hmm. and we have queen lift starter finishers that, that are just raising the cells constantly for us, and it all runs like clockwork, and I started teaching this, and people went through the system, graft on Mondays, catch queens, and bank the brood on Tuesdays, finish catching that set a few hundred nukes on Wednesday, and then Thursday the cells go in to replace the queens that we caught. It's just like so simple. It's as I want to try it. To figure it out. And I've had people come out, and after four days, they look at this program and say, this is way too much work. We're just going to buy queens from you. <sighs> oh, no, that's been trying to get everyone to do this for themselves. Yeah, I've really hit a wall in how simple I, I've been able to make this process. But yeah. Well, so, it's like if a few local beekeepers in every state did this, we could truly have locally raised queens available for all the oh, beekeepers. Yeah. yeah, sure, sure. And, well, this is like a production model of, you know, like people I've worked for, like raising queens and stuff like that. I've, mm-hmm. I've taken little facets of here, there, and stuff. And, and like, the self-contained system is, is, is uh, really made it all click, having very clean bees going into those cell raisers. It's very hard to... To raise queen cells with any like presence of varroa. That's what I mean. Like, well, I have like varroa in my bees and in my outyards and things like that, and they they can cope with it for the most part. The the, the genetics and uh, uh, the way that we're doing it in the cell raisers, the varroa can like, really like cause problems. So the self-contained system of brood from the mating nukes have really made it all click on like a production kind of like you know commercial level. I, I call myself a recovering commercial beekeeper. So like, I just do all this for funsies. Um, but, you know, I'm realizing that this is like, there's, there's some real hindrances for up-and-coming beekeepers, like with the learning how to do grafting, learning how to set up cell raisers, having just the bee power to, like, mm-hmm. make cell raisers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I realize, like, the limits of doing this on, like, a, that commercial kind of scale and so the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of experiments just with uh, emergency queens. So I, I call them bees choice queens. Uh, working with like different systems and different recipes of like, you know, just a, uh, a comb of larva, a comb of nectar, an extra two shakes of bees, seal them up, move them, and come back in four weeks, see what you got. You know, mm-hmm. tweaking the recipe, seeing what happens. 
And I started sending those resulting things to uh, David Tarpey's lab at uh, NC State University. He runs the, 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 the Queen Clinic, we, we call it. It's the, the, the Honeybee Queen and Disease Clinic at NC State. And the, or some people call it the Queen Machine, you know. He's sending the Queen, and they'll, they'll weigh all parts of her body. They're, they're, they'll measure her head and, and thorax, abdomen, and her legs and, and stuff. And then they'll dissect the spermatheca, and they'll tell you how many sperm are in the spermatheca, and also what percentage of those sperm are actually alive. Like that. And then they'll give the queen a grade. You know, she'll get an A or a B plus or minus or, or something. <laughs> and uh, you don't get the queen back, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. for, for years now, I mean, with the price of queens being so good, I wanted to make sure that my queens were like good quality by national standards and stuff. But last year, I sent the first batch of these emergency bees choice queens in, and every single one of them came back over five million sperm which is over 2 million they consider good, but they almost always see some in a batch under 2 million. But all these were over 5 million, and one was at 13.31 million sperm. Wow. That's like a lot. I didn't think that was physically possible. So, so how, many, <laughs> how many drones would she have had to meet with to have that much sperm? Who knows? <laughs> Another uh, guy, James Winthrow at, uh, at the Tarpy Lab, he's... Um, He's the one that's doing that research on the um, royal cryptic subfamilies. They're looking at uh, the genetics of um, emergency queen cells like this. And so when he started looking at these emergency queen cells, looking at their mitochondrial DNA, he realized that most of the emergency cells are from patcher lines that, uh, well, he's looking at the cellular DNA because that's, that's the only way to look at patcher lines. And he realized that these emergency cells uh, were actually being raised from patcher lines that weren't represented in the worker bee population. What? Uh, and actually, the bees were preferring to raise uh, uh, queens from the, these larvae that were, weren't even, they couldn't even find in the worker bee population like that. And so once they started doing these multiple tests of these different uh, queen cells, um, from the, they, they found that there were over 60 or 70 different patcher lines. So that queen was mating with what they figure 60 or 70 drones. Whereas, you know, oh standard belief is like 15 drones, you know, for queen, 20 drones for queen. But like, like they said, I mean, like in other apis species, like Dorsata, Serana and stuff, it's been noted that those queens do mate with 60 or 70 or more uh, different drones in one flight. So that, that's like... In one flight? Uh, really what's that? Uh-huh. Oh, sure. Oh, one my two, God. You know, it's usually what they take. Yeah, so it's a, it throws a lot of what we believe is going on in, into question. The, the, the standard beliefs in, in bees are always suspect. Science and beekeeping is just always at odds, you know? <laughs> so that, that was pretty cool research like that. But, uh, yeah, who knows what those, those bees are actually up to. I don't think we'll ever really find out. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. You are amazing. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> <laughs> just another bee geek. Well, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know you're so busy, but this has been so Mm -hmm. much fun. Can I call you again sometime? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Anytime. Come on out and visit. We're going to be doing like as many classes as possible. I'm into like the education aspect. Come out. We'll do a queen rearing intensive. Yeah, I'm actually going to be in Vermont in August. I'm going cool. to be up in yeah. Burlington, but I'm not sure specifically where you're located. Right across the lake. Are you um, serious? Yeah, Tucker has land there that we're calling Beesville. Uh, we've got 100 acres, <gasps> and the whole 
intention is to make it into a beekeeping school. Oh my you god! Know, all kinds of this, this crazy <laughs> stuff. So okay, be in South Florida in the winter and up in the Adirondacks in the summer, and uh, you're gonna do uh, Apamandia. It's gonna be awesome. Oh, I've never gone. Sounds like I need to. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be rad. It's, it's going to be really good. So. Okay. Oh <laughs> Plenty my of God. <laughs> um, I'm so glad to know you. Thank you so much for talking with me. And I'm like, my mind is blown. I think I need to sit and just process everything <laughs> that you just talked about. Yeah. Couldn't do it without coffee. You know, so. <laughs> my pleasure, Mandy. All right. Have a great day. Yep. Good luck in storm season. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Be well. Bye. To learn more about Sam and his work, visit my blog at waggleworkspdx.com. And while you're there, swing by my shop and pick up a Beekeeper Confidential sticker to slap onto your beehive for just $5. And if you haven't done so already, follow me on social media. Beekeeper Confidential is on Facebook and Instagram. Okay, I've got a presentation to go finish up. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Beekeeper Confidential is a Waggle Works production and is written and produced by Mandy Shaw.